0: Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental.
1: And here's your 30 second summary
0: She was born among silverware, paid for with nickel, dressed in copper, and held up by an iron framework and the hopes and dreams of generations of Americans.
1: Not the end. <laughs> Let's talk about the Statue
0: of Liberty. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1886, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson was first published. Carl Benz patented and began manufacturing the Benz Patent Motor Wagon, the first automobile powered by a gasoline engine. Sigmund Freud opened his first private practice in Vienna. Jacobs Pharmacy in Atlanta began selling Coca-Cola. After fighting for his homeland for over 30 years, Apache warrior Geronimo is the last Native American to surrender to the United States. Spanish royal decree abolishes slavery in Cuba. Diego Rivera, husband of Frida Kahlo. Clarence Birdseye, father of frozen foods, and Ty Cobb, a guy who played baseball, were all born. Emily Dickinson and John Deere both died. And on October
1: 28, 1886, the dedication of the Statue of Liberty was held in New York City. The Statue of Liberty was born at a dinner party in the summer of 1865 in Guatini, France. Or should we say conceived at a dinner party? It's not many ladies who can say that. That's really funny. It was a meeting of some progressive French intellectuals who were gathering both to mourn the death of the American president, Abraham Lincoln, and to celebrate the North's victory in the American Civil War. France's leader, you should know had been on the side of the Confederacy, not out of any real love of slavery exactly or the South in general. But he wanted America busy eating itself while he was going to take over Mexico, nefarious purposes. Now, here's where we can insert an alternate yet related origin story. Basically, that same group of French intellectuals, again defying Napoleon III, raised money to give a gold medallion to Abraham Lincoln's widow, our old friend Mary Todd Lincoln from episode 70, which they did in fact present. In French, it says... Lincoln, the honest man who abolished slavery, restored the Union, and saved the Republic without veiling the Statue of Liberty. Oh, ho, ho. Well, regardless
0: of the origin story, Liberty Enlightening the World, which was the original title, was the first and only offspring of the people of France and the United States thousands of tradesmen, marketers, and her father, Frédéric Auguste Bartholdi.
1: Yeah, in this case, we just don't seem to have a mother figure at all. <laughs> so let's just move on to papa. Frédéric Auguste Bartholdi was born in 1834, one of the sons of an extremely wealthy man who had died when his son, Frederick, was only two. And so Bartholdi was raised by a very harsh, strong mother. <laughs> let's say, who kept him financially dependent on her. I never really approve of that. No,
0: but she also was in his corner quite a bit. We'll get into that. But I don't know. Yes, she was strong. And for the time, she was probably very brash, I think.
1: Well, still, there are worse dates because there was money to burn. His mama had wanted him to be a lawyer. Luckily, he had an older brother who, at least at the outset towed the line to lawyerdom okay so our Bartoldi was a little more free to study things like art and architecture which is one of the
0: perks of the second child the pressure is kind of off of them
1: that's why i always say that prince harry has a joyous life
0: he does look a lot happier
1: doesn't he especially (laughs) now now that
0: he has the markle sparkle on his arm
1: oh he's so cute
0: i know um, his mom did move the family from Colmar, France, which is in the northeast corner, it's kind of on the border of Germany and France and Switzerland's in that area, to Paris, although Bartholdi always held Colmar as his hometown in his heart. That plays a part in his life later. Um, but when he was in Paris, he was sent to the National School of the Arts and studied both architecture and painting
1: well, um, one of Frédéric Bartholdi's mentors had a real passion for giant statuary and had, in fact, designed two of the major large statues on the Arc de Triomphe. Um, we'll put pictures of them up. So Peace and Resistance are his two statues, and they're just giant And of course, everybody with a classical education knew about the Colossus of Rhodes, which was a giant statue of the Greek god Helios, one of the wonders of the ancient world, about 108 feet tall. And even after an earthquake had knocked it over, it was a tourist attraction for 800 more years until it was dragged away and sold for scrap, which seems really ignominious to me. (laughs) <laughs> I'm like, how dare you? <laughs> I know. Do you not know what that is? <laughs> well, so it's gone forever. Um, and of course, there's Michelangelo's David, which is not as big, but is giant in scale. And there were and are significant ancient colossi in Asia, though I am not sure Bartholdi would have studied those. Well, he would have studied quite a bit. I it wouldn't have totally surprised me. There is something awe-inspiring about Giant Works of Art. I don't know what it is. I mean, they continue to be built. It's kind of amazing how many you can even just think of off the top of your head and wait until you guys see the Genghis Khan monument. It's pretty new. 2008 or the Guan Yin from 2005. I mean, they just keep getting built. We all, of course, recognize Brazil's Christ the Redeemer because the Olympics wanted to use their drones real bad. (laughs) in the Rio olympics and so we got a lot of footage of that statue mount rushmore sitting bowl i am not sure either of those qualify as colossi i keep wanting to say colossuses i think because of hippopotamuses (laughs) it's not colossuses no we can't make it a thing (laughs) but it is hippopotamuses
0: and it's not hippopotami Hmm. But
1: it is cacti. Oh,
0: English is so confusing.
1: (laughs) Well, in my defense, neither colossi or hippopotamuses come up that often in my daily life. (laughs) Neither do cacti. But of course, Bartoldi, unless he had a time machine, didn't know about any of the things we were just talking about. He was focused on the large statuary of antiquity. And his mother got him a gig. She's a connected person. Yes, she was connected. And she really believed in her son. That's for sure. Well, so he uh, got a gig making a municipal statue of a hometown hero at 19. He beat out several more experienced sculptors, which I think was a little bit of bad blood. But hey, that's nepotism, kids. That's yeah. the art world. <laughs> I don't know what to tell Exactly.
0: You. I mean, he had the skill and the talent. He did not have the experience, but he had mama in his corner who was, you know, talking to the right people. So, hey, look, he
1: got the commission. So he built it to within an inch of not being able to get it out of his workshop at all. So he built it literally as large as he could. And mother pulled some more strings and got this work into kind of a World's Fair type of exhibition, but it was too big to fit inside. So, guess where they put it? Right at the entrance, where it got more attention than it should have gotten. <laughs> Say the art critics. But, um, Niner, I got a third place prize. So.
0: Mm -hmm. And he got his name known because, you know, if you had to go into the exhibition, you weren't, you know, just the guy walking on the street. So there, every Tomas, Richard and Henri could see it outside. (laughs) I'm
1: sorry, that just tickled me. (laughs) Uh, All right. That's really funny. There was another statue there called the France Crowning Art and Industry. And if that figure in the middle doesn't look familiar to you, I don't know what. I have to tell you, this is so frustrating for me because I keep wanting to show you pictures and I will. And they'll be on the Pinterest board. But that figure in the middle is a dead ringer for someone that you know. Yes. Well, maybe not a dead ringer, but at least similar enough to be her older sister. But you can decide for yourselves what you think of their resemblance. Some people say that um, the future Lady Liberty looks like Bartholdi's older brother Charles could be. It's commonly said that she was... Uh, modeled after his mother.
0: But if you look at his mother and Liberty's faces, they're not really similar, I don't think.
1: No, no, no. Charles, his older brother, might have a shot at being an inspiration. But once you see that statue, Mm. (laughs) have you seen it? Actually, no, I don't even know which one you're talking about. So actually, I'll look it up. Let's see.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. (laughs) Did you see the (laughs) close-up? Yep, I'm looking at the close-up right now. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) we're supposed to get inspiration for our art from our lives, right? I don't know about copying,
1: but... Well, I'm just saying, see, now that you've seen it, you're with me.
0: I'm totally with you, completely
1: with you. I can't not be with you on this one. (laughs) Yes. Well, Bartoldi's dream was to see the wonders of Egypt. Particularly the Colossi of Memnon Which are two sitting statues In modern day Luxor That flank the entrance to a temple That's no longer there This place floods like crazy And also people harvested Like they did in Rome with the Colosseum They harvested the pieces of the temple To build other things So that's a super bummer But at least the Colossi are still there And so, like you do When you have a wish and a pocket full of money He took off to be inspired Side Note, at this point when he was 21, the Sphinx was still just, I say just, I mean, just a big head. It's a big head. But (laughs) as far as anyone was concerned, it didn't go much past um, the collarbones. People hadn't seen its paws or lower body in over 3000 years. Um, so Bartoldi made good use of his time. He made hundreds of paintings and, again, helps to be a rich man, had a hold of a new camera that made these things called calotypes that only took two minutes To expose, unlike um, daguerreotypes, which are the other thing available, took 15 minute exposure. But this one you could get done very quickly. You just had to be kind of careful and keep your boxes free of sand and stuff because you couldn't develop them until you got back. Um, You had to put all these like wet, exposed things in a box. Mm -hmm. I love that though, he's like into new technology for the era. You know, he's not just sitting there
0: sketching what he's seeing, he's taking a photograph to bring back to his studio. I think that's a very young artist with a lot of enthusiasm.
1: (laughs) Well, and I think that's just how young people are throughout history. I think it helps to not be afraid to be a beginner at something. Mm -hmm. That's the same thing about his paintings, too. The friends that he was traveling with mocked his paintings the whole time. And then toward the end, they realized, hey, wait a minute. Um, We're supposed to be these painters and we didn't paint anything. (laughs) And he's the one that filled boxes full of paintings and got so much better while we were making fun of him. Whoops. So, you know,
0: <laughs> I love the image of this group of artists, you know, just taking this cruise of the Nile and stopping and seeing stuff. It just sounds like a fun adventure.
1: And I think had he not become a sculptor, Bartoldi would have been a good photographer. He is very um, chauvinistic and said it was hard to take pictures of ladies and girls because they just kept moving. Even after he told them not to, they had to dance around.
0: Well, in some of his pictures, there's men that are moving
1: and they appear as if they're two people in some of his photos. So how come the ladies came in for the criticism? I don't know. I I don't know. (laughs) Well, closer to home on the way back, he was just gobsmacked by a statue in Munich called Bavaria, and uh, yeah, I would again like you to go to our Pinterest board and look at all these works I'm mentioning. It's super hard. Well, to make you see it, this lady is classically draped on a very tall pedestal, and she's holding above her head a sheaf of wheat. Again, a similarity to themes in his later work, although the face is not the same. Well, he already had the face in his mind. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, so he decided that this was his thing. This kind of giant municipal art was where his heart was going to be. Okay, that's fine. It's all well and good to have a dream. But the challenge <laughs> common to artists throughout history, I believe is to get someone to pay for it. So Bartholdi looked around at what was happening in the world and decided on his target. Egypt. Did we trick you?
0: you didn't trick me. What was happening with Bartaldi as he was establishing himself as a sculptor is that the Suez Canal was being built. This was a super big deal. And Egypt was pouring a lot of money into this to connect the Mediterranean to the Red Sea. It was something he wanted to get in on. And he felt that the Suez Canal needed a lighthouse and he was the guy to make it.
1: Well, it would kind of be an homage to the Great Lighthouse of Alexandria. So how would that be for a legacy? Kind of the new colossus on a new lighthouse of Alexandria. So the ruler of Egypt agreed to look at a proposal. And so Bartholdi set to work. And we have the drawings. This one would be a woman standing on a pedestal holding a lighted torch over her head. About 100 feet high. Entitled Egypt Carrying the Light to Asia. Or, you know what? If you prefer Big Boss, we'll just call it Progress. That's fine, too. It's up to you, (laughs) the name. You know, (laughs) let me do a little dance. Um, So she started out as a peasant woman, but morphed into a goddess. It was more dignified. um, Whose light came not from her torch, as you're probably thinking, but from her crown. Bartoldi made a miniature to go along with it because, you know, clients, man. Sometimes they have no vision. So he had to have a 3D model. He spent a lot of time on this proposal because this was going to occupy years of his life if the guy took it. In this case, the client, I don't know if he had vision or not, but he had no money. Egypt was just <laughs> mired in debt. Like, why... Did you waste my freaking time then? How frustrating is that?
0: I don't know. It's probably like someone going into a a high-end car dealership, you know, and the salesman going, oh, we have a customer here, and then finding out after hours in a test drive (laughs) that they don't have the money for it.
1: Oh, my gosh. Bow and smile. Bow and smile. You don't want to burn a bridge, but dang it. And so now what? Now he's got to hustle for commissions. And during one of these jobs, he met Edouard René de Labouillet, host of the dinner party we spoke of at the beginning of this episode. He was hired to make a bust of this man. That's See, this is like little commissions now he's having to take because his big ones aren't panning out. This guy, Laboulaye, and his circle of friends were super fans of the American Republic. They collected all kinds of stuff about Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and any book that came from America they tried to collect. They were like those comic book collectors, but kind of like before you could get Funko Pops of Benjamin <laughs> Franklin <laughs> and all that kind of thing. So they had to spend a lot more money. France, since the revolution had never gelled into a functioning system, but America had. And the Laboulaye party really idolized what they saw as this shining example of how civilizations could be if only humanity would get the crap together. As if on cue, the Franco-Prussian war erupted because France cannot be at peace for five minutes. Bertoldi had to fight as a soldier. He was, well, he wanted to. Because um, his province was in danger. Um, I have to tell you, that province of Alsace switches places between Germany and France every dang time there's a war, I think. And France itself turned into kind of a civil war, which left both Bartholdi's home in Alsace and his part of Paris sort of left in his opponent's hands. He's kind of functionally homeless right now. Laboulay had an idea. What about America? You know, because what else is he going to say? But what about America? This new upcoming world power is cozying up to Germany. Well, we are coming up on the
0: 100-year anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. What a great time to show America that we are their friends here in France. We are aligned with them.
1: We should give them some type of a gift. Well, yeah, they didn't want to be left out of this power click. Paris was known for art and culture. Germany to the French chauvinist, was not. (laughs) And they should perhaps put forward the idea of some kind of jointly sponsored monument for the 100th birthday. That's just the ticket. Dude, though, this is going to be spade work. You have to go talk to people. Uh, You're going to have to be the top regional salesman of 1871. So Laboulaye, who seems to know everyone, everywhere, kind of like his mom in (laughs) Europe, wrote him letters of introduction to prominent Americans. While those letters were being written, Bartholdi got busy. He started sketching. He had, of
0: course, this image that he had created for Egypt. He will later deny that that was the source of his inspiration for the Statue of Liberty. He'll deny that. But He was morphing that Arabic goddess into more of a Greek goddess. In some of his illustrations, her arm is at her waist. Some of it's raised up. It's usually her right hand. Her robe's changed. Uh, She got chains around her legs broken to symbolize slavery. The crown morphed into a seven-spoke diadem. Again, the light is emanating from that crown but it looked an awful lot like the one from Egypt. I'm sorry.
1: Well, it's supposed to be the personification of the Roman goddess Libertas. And there was, in this country, I'm, I mean America, also a tradition of a patriotic figure called Columbia, as in Columbia University, Washington, the District of Columbia. Our country here, instead of being called America, just might have been called Columbia. That name was in the running after the Revolutionary War. She stood for peace and wisdom and plenty and injustice. And though she didn't invent her, an enslaved African American poet named Phyllis Wheatley is given credit for personifying her, making her into a character. I mean Uncle Sam would take over later, I think, as you know, what we think of when we think of America. But at this time it was a female form of Columbus Columbia similarly Britain had Britannia and France had Marianne very similar in drapery and in accoutrement one of our very first anthems in fact until the 1930s was Hail Columbia um I don't know all the words but I do know who fought and bled in freedom's cause ring through the world with loud applause down came the rain and washed the spider
0: out i'm sitting here going i know this tune what is this tune?
1: yeah you do know this tune if that that is just itsy bitsy spider in a new package that's what i think or vice versa i don't know but um (laughs) similarly to columbia there was a tradition of this female personification of liberty in american art and literature and liberty in Colombia started to become sort of interchangeable and indistinguishable from each other. In fact, liberty was on the first coins ever minted by the U.S. government in 1793. Um, she did not spring out of the mind of Auguste Bartholdi, fully formed. This was to be a monument to a existing concept rather than a mere piece of sculpture or art. You know what I mean? hmm
0: I like that it also cast a little shade on the developing government of France, because giving this gift to the United States of this big symbol of liberty and democracy kind of says, oh, look, we really love this, don't we? So it was kind of shade to what was happening in France, which was not aiming itself towards the more democratic way of governing.
1: Like a prod in the back of France. You can do it. We would have given this to you, but you suck. So...
0: You know, <laughs> so Bartoldi with his sketches and a small statue of his proposed sculpture
1: and a mere eight hundred and twenty thousand dollars in his pocket i that's how right. is he going to
0: make it i don't know this is what he said i will try to glorify the republic and liberty over there meaning the united states in hope that someday i will find it here again oh look that's more shade isn't it
1: it definitely is.
0: <laughs> Legend has it that Bartholdi came to New York and he saw Bedloe Island and said, that's where it goes. But that wasn't the case at all. He did kind of glance at it because his ship had to go past it in New York Harbor, but he went scouting the city for other locations. He went to Central Park, but he thought it was just a little too wild and She wouldn't show up very well there. Um, He went to the Battery, which is at the tip of Manhattan, but he thought that there was too many buildings that would distract from her. He wanted a place where she would shine, where she would be the focus of everyone's eye. And having all these other buildings around her wouldn't do that. Then he looked at Bedloe
1: Island. (laughs) This island was the location of Fort Wood, which was an 11-point star fortress left over from the War of 1812. Empty, abandoned, sitting there with nothing right in the middle of the harbor. So once he picked the spot that he wanted the statue, he kind of
0: started knocking on doors. And it just reminded me of that scene in Singing in the Rain, um, you know, Broadway melody where Gene Kelly's Don Lockwood goes and knocks on all the doors and they get slammed in his face until one guy says, yes, let's do it. Gene Kelly comes into the whole scene kind of naive and he leaves a lot more experienced and a little jaded, I think. And that's
1: kind of what happened to Bartholdi on this visit To the United States. So he set out on an epic six month tour of the United States from the classic New York, Boston, Philadelphia through the growing cities of the Midwest including Chicago and St. Louis and Kansas City, and on to San Francisco and back. Everywhere was big and just brash, he thought. And Americans are too focused on money. I can't rouse their imagination for my project. Do they have any imagination? He was kind of doubting. (laughs) A gift from France to America to celebrate our relationship from your own revolution, which mostly Americans had either forgot or we're just ungrateful for. He was kind of startled. <laughs> it's so frustrating when you have this grand idea and people just stare blankly at you. Bartholdi just came to the conclusion, and I quote, America is an adorable woman who's chewing tobacco. <laughs> but I don't think the trip was a waste of time because Bartoldi had met prominent people all over America. He planted a seed. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes... Radical ideas might need time to percolate. He was good in a room. So mm-hmm. I imagine he left people with some excitement. Mm-hmm. Well, in yeah. the scene I was describing, Don Lockwood does get success as a dancer.
0: You know, it does happen for him. It just doesn't happen exactly the way he had expected. And I think that's just such a good example for how it happened to Bartholdi on this six-month trip of the United States.
1: So Bartholdi went home to see if he could perform more magic on the other side of the Atlantic. Maybe we can raise the interest, <laughs> money, on <laughs> our side. Okay. So for the next five years, Bartoldi kept the fire simmering while getting on with the business of creating other pieces of art. Notably, a monument to his home province which had been taken over by Germany during the war he fought in. It's called the Lion of Alsace, and it is widely considered his best work after the Statue of Liberty. Also, France itself gave him a commission for a gift to the United States of a statue of the Marquis de Lafayette, which was meant to thank the city of New York specifically for its financial help to the people of France during the recent war there. So there is a tie. The people of New York realized that the people of France were starving. Paris was blockaded for a long time. There was serious distress. And New York, as a city, came together and pulled them out of great peril. So this statue of a hero, a French hero of the Revolutionary War, was kind of like reinforcing the ties between the countries. See, they understood that concept. Mm -hmm. So I don't understand why they can't make this next (laughs) leap, but whatever.
0: (laughs) Well, because it's a 150-foot leap versus a statue in a park.
1: Ah, okay. Okay. Well, fair enough. Well, Bartoldi got to work on the Lafayette statue, as if he hadn't had enough to do. So that's occupying a lot of his time in the background. Over in France, a committee called the Union Franco-American formed when Bartoldi was 40 years old for the express purpose of furthering the Statue of Liberty project. Here's what I do Not get, though. There was a public appeal for funds in late September of 1875, and they seriously had the goal of getting the statue delivered to the United States by July of 1876? (laughs) So I'm guessing that they had a hold of people from the Ministry of Magic over in (laughs) England, because this seems unreasonably optimistic to me. (laughs) I think that they had had that date in their minds years before, you
0: know, so it was like, oh, we'll commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Declaration of Independence. So it was stuck in there. It was part of the whole package, that date. Yeah, there's no way they could have done it. I mean, even if they had the money all up front, there's no way it could have been created in a year.
1: Mm -mm. And you've got Samantha, the witch person is what, 70 years away? They're not going to get any help. (laughs) Uh, Well, so if you take a step back and think about this, French people were expected to contribute toward a giant statue in a foreign country. They're probably never going to see it. And this country as a whole was pretty dismissive and suspicious of France's ongoing chaos after the French Revolution. Nothing's really settled down and Americans were more comfortable with Germans, although they wouldn't be for very much longer, <laughs> um, it was going to take a concerted publicity campaign to get people excited about this. And as a matter of principle, the French government itself wasn't asked to contribute. This was supposed to be a statue from a people to a people as a gift. And at first, the donations did pour in. 180 different French towns sent contributions of their own. Thousands of schoolchildren sent their pocket money. The Freemasons got on board. People on the committee to create the Panama Canal thought, hey, this is going to be a great cross promotion for our own project. We get our name in here. We'll get a little publicity for our thing. Magazines began printing illustrations of the finished project. Again, I say clients always need drawings to be inspired. Um, Maybe it's just not the Americans that don't have imagination.
0: (laughs) I think Laboulaye and Bartholdi did a really great PR campaign, though, because they went right to the press first. That's why they were getting uh, mentions all over the country. They went to the press with a advertising pamphlet of the statue with Lafayette on one side of the graphic and Washington on the other. And just, told them about this project they were doing and the press got behind them. So I think as a public relations move, they did a good job starting out.
1: One man offered to donate all the copper needed for the statue, which was so generous of him. It would be tens of thousands of dollars. However, copper was at the lowest price it had ever been because this guy (laughs) had been speculating in copper. Speculating means he'd been criminally manipulating the market, which he was later jailed for.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I started laughing when you started telling this story because that's what I was like: oh, he was gaming the system. But all right, he, they got their copper.
1: Yay! Well, you know that's what's important. <laughs> that's right. That's <laughs> Is right. that liberty has a face? <laughs> 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 well, we don't have nearly enough money yet. They said, but we do have enough to start. So work began on the torch and the right hand at the workshop of an engineer, kind of a mad genius that reminds me so much of um, Leonardo da Vinci. Actually, a crazy genius called Eugène Violet le Duc. He's one of those guys that would kind of go into a fugue state while he was trying to get past a problem. You, you'd be talking to him, and all of a sudden, there'd just be like this. Vapidity (laughs) happening (laughs) he was thinking he was a genius. They were trying to figure out how to
0: shape the copper What Bartoldi did first was build a four-foot version of the statue And then he built a nine-foot version and then he built a 36-foot version and what they they had to do this right at the beginning Because if they're going to do the arm and the torch, they have to know how the whole thing goes together So at that point, they were able to take measurements of different pieces of the statue,
1: do a whole lot of math. There were 1,500 different points per section that they had to measure. This is a level of fiddliness I would have given up a long time ago. I'm like, you know what? Wine, bread, and cheese. (laughs) Well, they verified it six times, too. So it's like measure six times, cut once, I guess. Measure. Okay, what's six times 1,500 then? Whatever that is, measure that many times. As I said, they
0: did math. (laughs) (laughs) From that figure, they were able to put together a wooden mold for each particular part of the statue. Of course, we're just talking about the arm and the lantern at this point, but... From that mold, they were able to fill it with plaster of Paris. And then once the plaster of Paris dried and was sanded down, they were able to use that as another mold for the wooden shape that would ultimately get the copper pounded into it. I I don't understand one thing about this, and I <laughs> never got an answer to it as I was doing all my research. Why didn't they just start with the first wooden shape? Why do they need the plaster one?
1: Because the first wooden shape had to be reversed. Oh, OK. Thank I you. mean, I don't know, but I'm just assuming they couldn't use the first wooden slat one because when you would beat it, you would leave wood marks in and then you couldn't just do the plaster because you would beat the plaster all to hell. Right. So you had to make the reverse pattern of the finished thing that you liked. It was the reverse part that had me tripped
0: up. OK, that totally makes sense. But they laid the sheets of copper in this big wooden mold.
1: And then they just got busy pounding it. When they were done shaping it, the copper was not very thick, only the depth of about two pennies put together. These were some of those guys that had one Popeye arm. I bet because the raw material was considerably thicker when it started. I think you'd almost have to get good at using your non-dominant hand sometimes just, you know, so you wouldn't fall over, so you wouldn't be all lopsided. Well, and um, <laughs> so they were going to take this big hand and torch to the Philadelphia exhibition of 1876. That's as close as you can get to your original deadline. At least the hand will be on American soil for the centennial. That's as close as they could get, but alas and alack, they broke the hands plaster mold into a jillion billion pieces to dust all over the floor <laughs> while moving it and had to start over. So It's going to be late. That is really a bummer. And the production of just this part had been so expensive, so time consuming, and so overreaching the cost expectations that Bertoldi made plans to just call it quits on this statue, you know? The hand and the torch is going to be a suitable statue that I could probably sell. All the money raised so far had been spent already on this one part. It was time to face reality. Liberty, enlightening the world, was going into the pipe dream bucket. He was done. And it was over. And this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll find out what
0: happened to make it happen. (laughs) You know a question I was getting really tired of? Mom, what's for dinner? I don't know. There's a menu on the side of the refrigerator and that menu had the same dishes every single week. I love cooking, but I really wasn't loving cooking. So you know what I did? I fired up my HelloFresh subscription, and now I'm getting fresh, pre-measured ingredients and mouth-watering, seasonal, new-to-us recipes delivered right to my door with HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. HelloFresh offers so many recipes to choose from, it really has helped us break out of my recipe rut. There's something for everybody. There's low-calorie, vegetarian, pescatarian. There's all kinds of options. I've cut out a lot of my stressful meal planning. I've cut a lot out of my weekly grocery list. I'm sort of enjoying cooking again. And I'm getting those meals to the table in about 30 minutes. In 2019, HelloFresh donated over 2.5 million meals to charity. That was before the coronavirus. This year, they stepped up their food donations even more. Why don't you fire up your HelloFresh subscription? Go to hellofresh.com slash 80historychicks and use code 80historychicks to get a total of $80 off, including free shipping on your first blocks. Additional restrictions apply, but please visit hellofresh.com for more details. That's hellofresh.com slash 80historychicks. That's the number 80, then historychicks. As always, we'll have this information in our show notes.
1: And we're back. So Lady Liberty is at a standstill. Well, she's not, literally, because literally her hand is on a boat <laughs> to the Philadelphia Exposition of 1876, late, like it was almost over late. There was only a month left in the exposition and Bartholdi was full of rage. I mean, they didn't mean to drop the plaster figure of a hand, but they did. And it put him so far behind that people just didn't see it. And that's what he was counting on. You know, Heinz Ketchup, though, was introduced during this exposition and a little invention called The Telephone by Alexander Graham Bell. So the people that went to the exposition didn't waste all their money. (laughs) But a couple of things happened That changed Lady Liberty's fortune. Number one, Bartholdi's statue of the Marquis de Lafayette went up in New York City. Bartoli
0: had taken control of this project the city had wanted to put the statue off to the side in Central Park and he said no it's got to be right in the middle of the square and there needs to be all this fanfare to unveil it and so they said okay so there was a big military parade and there was a huge ceremony to unveil this statue and suddenly not only did New York have a statue but Bartoli had some street cred as an artist. They could see something that he has done. There's something right in front of them in the city of New York that says, oh, that's the guy that wants to build statue out in the water.
1: Huh? So I think you're right. That guy, Bartoli, he's famous. I've heard of him. Maybe so, because dang, when that arm and torch got put up at the exposition, people could not get enough of it. You could go up in the torch for 50 cents, which is $15. And that's a lot of money for just going up in a torch. It's not a ride. It's, you know, um, they made so much money off of this. And also photographic prints of the hand and arm would not stay on the shelf. There was a little souvenir stand set up at the bottom where her elbow would have been. And it was just printing money. Well, it was brilliant
0: because if you went up into the torch...
1: You had to come down and
0: get spit out into the gift shop, just like any exhibit that we go to now. You know, you're
1: right in the gift shop. You might as well buy a souvenir. Oh, yeah. People loved it. They even sold pieces of scrap metal from having cut out the torch. Yeah. Amazing. People couldn't get enough of them. Assorted price points of souvenir statuettes began to be produced. Um, Small change trickled in. And large change seemed to be back on track. It it had another um, step in the right direction. Congress
0: agreed to give Bedloe Island for the statue. They didn't give any money.
1: (laughs) 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 But at least there was an official place to put it. I'm not 100% sure we've even spelled this out yet, but the agreement between the statue committees that had been organized in the United States and France was that the French would organize and pay for the statue and the Americans would build and pay for the pedestal to place it on. Some Americans did not take kindly to this whole plan. It is sort of the colossal version of giving someone a present that needs batteries, but not including the batteries. The committee in
0: New York hired an architect, Richard Morris Hunt, to be in charge of the design of the pedestal. So there's little progress being made now in the United States. Back in Paris, work had begun on the head. Fresh from his success over in the United States, Bartholdi kind of switched up the fundraising efforts in France. Gone were the balls and the banquets, like had at the beginning where they had gotten a lot of money from a few people. He decided to sell souvenirs, just like was happening in Philadelphia. And what he also did was create a huge diorama for a franc and a half, half price on Sundays. People could walk in and they would get the impression that they were standing on the stern of a ferry looking at Lady Liberty in the harbor of New York. It was like they were there.
1: It was the analog version of virtual reality. It was blowing people's minds. (laughs) Man, the things I could do with a time machine and an iPhone. I tell you. I know, right? (laughs) Um, so the head was finished and sent through to the Champ de Mar where the modern Eiffel Tower is standing, if you would like to get a picture of where that is in Paris. And I would like to quote the words of an onlooker watching the progress of the head to its display location. Suddenly, at about eight o'clock in the evening, a colossal head was discerned through the vault of the Arc de Triomphe. It was at once strange and moving to see that at each turn of the wheels, the head swayed slightly, as though acknowledging the cheers of the inquisitive crowds. In spite of ourselves, we all tipped our hats to return the courtesy.
0: (laughs) I love that. I love
1: that. Bartoldi was a good
0: marketer. I mean, I guess artists have to be, right? They have to know how to sell their work. And he was really invested in this particular project.
1: Brilliant. He did one great thing. Bartoldi and friends quote, leaked photos from inside their workshops. Eh, People love behind-the-scenes action so much they cannot get enough of it. He started selling tickets to allow people to come see the workmen at work. And I don't know how much they loved being animals in a zoo. I'm sure they loved getting paid, and that's how they were (laughs) getting paid. Bartoldi
0: also threw dinner inside the statue as it was going up so people could go to a dinner party held in the statue. Well, of course, they'd pay for that.
1: People just really like to be let in backstage of things because Chris Graham does this thing where he has dinners in his commercial kitchen and you would think people wouldn't love it. All those spoons hanging on the wall, everything's labeled with blue packing tape, etc. It's not that glamorous. <laughs> but to people unaccustomed to what happens in a big commercial kitchen, this seems really um, amazing. So can you imagine... Having dinner, looking out her eyeballs. (laughs) It's pretty cool.
0: It is pretty cool. But you know what? We still do that today. Think of Patreon. You know, how many podcasters have accounts? We are not one of them. And they give their edits. The stuff that they cut out of their show is what people are listening to. I don't know why anybody would want to listen to ours, because all we do is talk
1: about our kids. <laughs> what finally pushed the French effort over the edge was a national lottery. Corporations and individuals gave really good prizes. And the result was that the French production of the statue was fully Funded. And on July 7th, 1880, the French notified the Americans that there was no further obstacle to completion of this statue and work would begin apace. Okay. Yes. There was one little obstacle, though. America was the obstacle. America (laughs) was responsible for the pedestal. And it was just silent and sad trombones. (laughs) The American Committee for the Statue of Liberty just could not raise either money or enthusiasm. Though Cleopatra's needle arrived from Egypt, fully paid for and put up in Central Park with no trouble by the Vanderbilts. I don't get it. (laughs) (laughs) during this time period, this exact time, no problems.
0: uh, I kind of do because the Vanderbilts and all the other Gilded Age wealthy of New York were putting their money into things that they owned. They were hiring the same architect that was going to design the pedestal hunt to build their cottages in Newport, but that was theirs. This is just a thing that's out in the water. You know, it's not theirs. They can't claim it. So I'm guessing that's one of the reasons why they weren't writing those big checks. You know, they couldn't show it off.
1: Yes, that is an explanation of why they're not ponying up for the pedestal, a selfish reason. But then we're left with the anomaly of the needle being fully funded. Maybe that was verified old stuff TM. None of this excitable French madness. People are just unpredictable and weird. Let's leave it at that. And also people in other cities were all, why should I pay for anything that benefits New York City? There seems to be a lot more city rivalry than there is now. I mean, St. Louis and Kansas City have like a joking, we're just on opposite ends of the highway type of thing. Mm -hmm. Right. But like, right. we don't really care. I mean, Boston and New York are still pretty bad, huh?
0: Um, yes, actually, they they are. <laughs> <laughs> Just think about what would happen if there was a baseball player that went from, from the Yankees to the Red Sox. That's a big
1: deal. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Bartholdi had serious problems of his own over on the French side. Work had begun on the body. He had enough money. But little did anyone involved with the project know that Bartholdi had literally no idea how to keep this statue up. For real. <laughs> and the conditions it was going to be in were very demanding. And his former engineer, Violet le duc had been thinking, fill it with sand? maybe. But anyway, he had died. We are in a pickle. We are in a grand cornichon. (laughs) Well, the cure for this pickle
0: came in the form of the second engineer. He was a very successful bridge builder. He was building these ginormous bridges around France. So he was holding up metal structures in the elements. And his name was Gustave Eiffel. That's right. The same guy who's going to design the Eiffel Tower in a few years was hired make the statue stand
1: well he was intrigued by the challenge which he said came in three parts wind because see with the bridge especially the way he built them open with no facings there were plenty of holes and the wind just would whistle through but this thing was going to be solid Okay, that's a challenge. Also, temperature differences in New York went from super high to super low, and there was going to be expanding and contracting of material. Also, something I did not know, although I kind of want to go do an experiment now, um, the copper and iron touching make electricity um i guess what you'd be <laughs> faced with was one big battery
0: <laughs>
1: a 150
0: foot battery awesome yeah i didn't know that either that surprised me
1: so his idea his ultimate idea was that there would be a free standing weight bearing iron tower which sounds familiar where the copper pieces sort of just hang like clothes riveted together very loosely to accommodate changes in temperature. And then the copper and iron were just to be separated by pieces of cloth. And I think later they used asbestos, but just a physical barrier between the metal, which seems very simple. It does. (laughs) Anyone could have thought of that. But meanwhile, the Statue of Liberty was rising out of the skyline of Paris. How strange would it be to see a giant lady person just slowly emerging out of the rooftops. I think that sounds kind of thrilling. Oh my gosh. This was my favorite
0: image. I kept going back to these pictures over and over again and just trying to imagine myself being in Paris at the time. The workshops were on the edge of Paris. They were out where the warehouses were. They weren't where people were living. So the people where they were living, could watch her just develop, growing in their eyesight. They didn't have to listen to the banging and all the construction noise, but they could have their cocktails on their balconies and, you know, check the daily progress of Liberty. What a cool image. That was my favorite. Absolutely.
1: Hands and I, down. And I have to tell you that photographs look very surreal to see her, especially the ones where she's nearly finished. Uh, not in the right place. Mm-hmm. And no, it's real. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's very interesting. Well, as for the apathy of America, several books that I read blamed, I guess, art for the lack of interest in contributing to the statue. Illustrations of a fully formed statue had been circulating for years. There is an epic painting called Liberty Lighting the World's Commerce by a painter called Edward Moran that had been exhibited at fundraising events for years. I'm trying to figure out the rationale, and the closest I could come was that if there was a Kickstarter that you were watching and they were already selling the product, maybe you'd be less inclined to contribute than if it were just a guy with a bright idea and a dream. I think that's a perfect analogy. Well, even though the statue was only a head, really, it started to become the symbol of some kind of ideal and started to be used in political cartoons, even though she was just a decapitated head (laughs) and part of a body at this point. Now, for the most part, people with money in New York City, and you know those titans of industry, we've talked about them before in the Gilded Age Heiresses podcast, they were openly hostile to the statue. If all of those guys had just pitched in their dinner budgets for the summer hey, presto, we would have been done. But most of the wallets stayed firmly closed. And it didn't help that the architect that they'd hired to build the pedestal, because they had enough money for engineering and drawings, they decided to go ahead with that. He came back with a much higher estimate for the work. And, ah, what is going to happen? Other cities started putting their ore in. Washington, D.C. offered to put it up near their new Washington Monument, that thing that had been sitting there half done for 20 years due to lack of funds and still wasn't finished. So where, you know, ain't no money in Washington, D.C. I don't know where they think that money's coming from. (laughs) Boston offered to take it. Them's fighting words. Baltimore wanted it. San Francisco said it would give the statue a great home. See what I mean, though, about people Thinking the lack of funds was a New York City problem? Like, if you have cash Mm -hmm. to put it in the San Francisco Bay, why can't you just contribute to the pedestal?
0: Again, because you don't see it. It's not yours. You know, it's the same thing as the Gilded Age millionaires. It's not theirs. They don't see it. But if it's, you know, it's in my backyard, I'll pay for it.
1: Oh, because it's the somebody else's problem field. That is the strongest force in the universe. Yeah. Yeah. It was very embarrassing. This whole... Just difficulty raising the funds for the pedestal made even more so when in 1883, the American Pedestal Committee got a formal notice from the French. Mais me, the statue's complete. She can stand here in Paris till you're ready for her. Like, ha ha, thank you. We're so not ready. I'm <laughs> not ready at all. Work on the foundation was able to begin at last while fundraising efforts continued in the background, just ahead of needs, which was pretty scary. It took six whole months for just excavation. They decided to leave the Star Fort, which I thought was very smart and good of them.
0: I do, too. Not only is it shaped Um, You know, it's an 11 point star. It's shaped really cool and aesthetically pleasing, but it kind of is a nod to the history of the island and how it was used originally as a fort. Perfect place.
1: Eight more months after that to completely layer in all of that concrete. 53 feet deep of concrete, 12,000 cubic feet of concrete. Costs for the pedestal part after the foundation was done were going to be $300 a day. And they did have enough money to start... But it was a giant gamble. How embarrassing if they were to run out of cash and then have this half-finished failure in plain sight again. (laughs) Or still, because the Washington Monument isn't quite done yet, is it? I know. It's like, we've been through this before. But still, they decided to take the gamble. They rolled the dice decided to move ahead and lay the cornerstone. A box is inside with newspapers and coins and memorabilia and other items. Are those recoverable or are they in uh, the stone? I never knew that. Like, are they expecting to get it back at some point or are they just gone? Um,
0: I don't know. I thought on the outside, the granite um, is a granite veneer. So I was under the impression that it was just a box that was kind of underneath it somehow. But I guess it would
1: have to be in the cement,
0: right? I don't know.
1: Well, so many schemes were tried in America to raise more cash. Bartholdi sat and signed autographs for a week so they could auction them off. There was a public appeal for, quote, 1,250,000 10 cent pieces by a patriotic organization. They did raise 20,000 of those 10 cent pieces, but it took them a year.
0: <laughs> this money is just slowly trickling in and it's really hand to mouth. You know, it's just like living paycheck to paycheck as far as the construction of the pedestal goes.
1: Some statues began to be sold for either a dollar for the small ones or $5 for the larger ones. And Bartoldi actually assigned signed his royalties temporarily from these statues, because remember, he owned the patent. He assigned the royalties to the pedestal committee because of desperation. He could not believe these people were not coming up with this money. At least they were respecting his copyright. So that was good.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think that was a brilliant move on his part. He wasn't getting paid for this project. Of course, he's doing other things, commissions of projects that are paying his bills. But this particular thing is a labor of love. The patent... You know, the, anyone that's going to use the image is going to have to pay him for it. That was a brilliant move. Either he could use the money to fill his own personal coffers or he could donate it to the project.
1: The New York State Legislature voted to give them $50,000, but it was vetoed by Governor Grover Cleveland. This isn't a good plan to spend public money for private enterprise. How is this private enterprise?
0: I, I got nothing.
1: The U.S. Congress passed a bill to give 100000 to the statue, but this money disappeared during the reconciliation process between the Senate version of the finance bill and the House version. Their money disappeared. Oh, no. A children's medicine manufacturer offered a very large sum of money, but they had a condition, an unfortunate condition. Lady Liberty would have to hold an advertisement for their product, for a year. Here's the trouble. They made laxatives. (laughs) Welcome to America, home of people that poop good. (laughs) No, thank you. (laughs) No. (laughs) And work just had to stop on the pedestal. It was only 15 feet high out of 90 feet. And a very famous cartoon was published of an elderly Lady Liberty sitting there on the 15 feet of pedestal, just waiting for the rest of it. Very sad. Meanwhile, No matter how much you love a person, there's only so much time you're going to store his stuff. The French were disassembling the statue. They packed it into 214 different crates and they numbered it with an instruction book like a giant Lego project. There was an element in France that had gotten used to La Liberté being a part of their city and some Parisians really wanted to keep it. Come on, the Americans obviously don't want it. But the workmen needed their space back. Now that the job was done, it was sort of a relentless demolition, (laughs) no no matter what anyone thought about it. A vocal section of the population mourned so openly about it that the American expat community had raised money and made a quarter-sized version of the statue that they gave as a gift to the French people that now sits on Swan Island in the middle of the Seine. It was given during the centennial of the French Revolution. On time I might add <laughs> uh, I think it was a big blow for the people who had wanted this statue to stay when old Gustav FL instead put this old tower where her beautiful head used to be never fear they really like it now but a lot of them didn't like it then they thought it was a very poor substitute <laughs> as for our statue, they were putting it on a ship kids it's a coming <laughs>
0: And there's nowhere to put
1: it. (laughs) Nowhere. Nowhere. Enter one Joseph Pulitzer, publisher of the New York World.
0: He was a very wealthy newspaper owner, a former immigrant, but he didn't write a check. Instead, he came up with a plan to get America to pay for the statue.
1: Here is... Part of his appeal that he published in his paper. First, he had to blast the multimillionaires, by the way. He blasted yeah. them all for their tight-fistedness. But then he said, The world is the people's paper, and it now appeals to the people to come forward and raise this money. The $250,000 that the statue cost was paid in by the masses of the French people. The workingmen, the tradesmen, the shopgirls, the artisans. By all, irrespective of class or condition, let us respond in like manner. Let us not wait for the millionaires to give this money. It is not a gift from the millionaires of France to the millionaires of America, but a gift of the whole people of France to the whole people of America. Please give something, however little. And then he went on with the clincher. We will publish the name of every giver, however small the sum given. And people love to see their name in
0: print. I don't think he was being entirely philanthropic because he was a brilliant newspaper man and he knew that subscriptions were going to increase. But, you know, that's okay; It's
1: a total win-win for both sides. (laughs) (laughs) This was the country's most widely read newspaper, but he was not content with that. He wanted to grind his opponents' faces in the dirt. (laughs) So if this statue could help him do so, well, then let's away. (sighs) People were all inspired to give suddenly. Even more so when Pulitzer had the idea to publish not just names, but letters, too. For example, from two little boys. We are 10 years old, and when we're big men, we want to say we helped build the pedestal. So we raise some money, and we send you $13. A little girl sent all of her pocket money, so he published her letter. Little kids in school's All across America sent boxes of pennies that they had collected in their classrooms. Veterans organizations from the Civil War, poker clubs, sewing circles, factory workers, immigrant associations. Get this, 80% of the money needed was received in sums of less than a dollar.
0: That's amazing. And six months into this program, he was able to publish an illustration on the front page of his paper of the Statue of Liberty holding an American flag in one hand and a fistful of dollars in the other. They had reached their goal.
1: Yay! it was truly just a project from the people of France to the people of America. And Pulitzer made it possible. And
0: this was so important that in the future, the statue will bear an inscription that says, quote, This pedestal to liberty was provided by the voluntary contributions of one hundred and twenty thousand patriotic citizens of the American Union through the New York world. And I might add, his subscriptions quadrupled. (laughs) Yeah, guy was brilliant. You got to give it to him. Well,
1: work had begun again on the pedestal only a month before the French ship Isère came bustling into the harbor and 200,000 people gathered to see it arrive. Every ship in the harbor joined in some kind of procession. French flags were flying everywhere. I don't know where you get French flags, but luckily they're red, white, and blue. (laughs) <laughs> um, it was kind of a serious bummer that the specter of the unfinished pedestal could not disappear for the day, whereas David Copperfield, when you need him, but hooray, hooray, the statue is here at last.
0: <laughs> yes, and she's kept in her crate for another year. <laughs>
1: <laughs> On the ground. <laughs> Uh, work continued on the pedestal with the able assist of the child, Emily Post. We talked about how uh, family friend Hop Smith was one of the major contractors on this project. and And so he used to take the young Emily Post to work with him on the construction site where she treated it as her playground. <laughs> Which reminds me of this very old episode of Sesame Street that used to be floating around. Haven't seen it in a long time. And it's one of the very, very earliest ones there's a group of little kids trying to teach the viewers over under and through and they are literally playing in an active construction site with machinery moving they're like crawling through piles of discarded pallets it's not good ditches it was very dangerous (laughs) (laughs) And the 70s and evidently Emily Post childhood. That was a different time. That's right. We still had metal slides back then. (laughs) Really tall ones. So the pedestal started with that star-shaped fort left over from the War of 1812 and then became kind of a grand, but somehow very simple building with 40 shields representing the 40 states. And I do believe they were supposed to have the state seals on, but never happened. Well, I didn't read
0: that, but I wondered why they were just smooth because, you, yeah, that would have made sense.
1: And I love the columns near the top of it. I like that it's not only smooth stone,
0: but there's also rough stone in there too. It's very simple. Um, The eye is drawn up. It's not rustic looking by any stretch of the imagination. It was a brilliant piece of architecture.
1: Now, by the time the pedestal was ready, Lady Liberty had been waiting in her boxes for almost a year. And of course, I was like, in the rain. (laughs) And then another part of my brain said, Where do you think she's going to be standing, Basie, you (laughs) dumb Alec? Well, this is my next favorite image because they needed to
0: uncrate everything. So the boxes were opened and all the pieces were taken out and put around Bedloe Island. So it kind of looked like they were going to be putting together this giant jigsaw puzzle, this 3D jigsaw puzzle.
1: Here's the bad news. No one had any more money for assembly, though. Really? (laughs) (laughs) This again, Congress, those two late Charlies, finally stepped in and voted in the money. But then they put in a special provision that none of this cash was to be used for celebratory drinks of an alcoholic nature, because that's what's important. (laughs) It just kills me. Like, really? That was important enough? I mean, the temperance... Was ramping up, but evidently that was very important. In fact, later, a French count was so horrified by that provision that he ended up buying all the wine for the opening ceremonies out of his own dang pocket. So, anyway, I wish, oh, I wish I could be there to see the statue going up. I even like those time lapse movies of people assembling big Lego sets. So, if anyone ever needs an idea for an animation class final, I give you this idea for free. Please send me a copy. I hope you get it. That would be cool. Because they had to build the
0: center structure, like the spine is how I kept thinking of it. They raised all the pieces up with a pulley system. It wasn't like big scaffolding around her like she would had in Paris. They couldn't do that in New York because of the elements. So every piece was just raised up on a
1: rope. Man. <sighs> I think they call those guys steeplejacks There used to be guys kind of roped to the top that would jump around, like rappel. But can you imagine, though... I,
0: A finger was eight feet long. You know, the fingernail on it was about a foot
1: long. Just for scale, the guides love to tell you that she wears a size 879 shoe. That is a lot of glorious metallic lady person emerging over the horizon. So just rising up. (laughs) Cool. (laughs) I love it. And I also love those photos you can see of like the back of her face, all the raw strapping and kind of disembodied. But they got her face on and the rest of it just in time for the deadline, the big reveal, though they had to work around the clock to get it done. There's 300,000 rivets. The rivets were all put in from the
0: inside and then smoothed down on the outside so they wouldn't show I mean, the detail in this thing is a miraculous.
1: So the big day arrived and it was done October 28th, 1886. Gray and rainy and cold, of course, like every time you plan a barbecue, but no one cared. A quarter of a million people came out into the streets to watch a giant parade go by.
0: The parade wound its way down through the streets of New York. And when it got to the New York Stock Exchange, people started throwing ticker tape out of the windows in celebration. It was a big
1: party. And that is actually the world's first ticker tape parade for (laughs) Lady Liberty. Here is a uh, on-the-spot description of what was happening. Not an empty spot in the streets. The Twin Rivers seem solid land as mist-purling ships maneuver bow to bow. The Brooklyn Bridge groans under its load of humanity. Sidewalks, portals, balconies, penthouses are covered with a happy throng. Flags fly in hearts as from buildings. A song runs all along the route of the march. The golden clarion of the Marseillaise flies over the parade. Head bared, the president salutes the tattered banners. As they pass in review, the companies dip their colors and the officers Of the French militia raised the hilts of their swords to their lips. Evidently, the very last element in the land based parade was George Washington's own coach drawn by horses. How cool is that? It was very, very (laughs) cool. Um, Outside of the world newspaper building was a giant arch that had been constructed with, in French, long live the brotherly friendship of the two republics. And then the dignitaries, including President Grover Cleveland, who, if you remember, voted against money for this statue when they were desperate and he was the governor. Hmm. (laughs) everybody gets on a boat and the parade was afloat and um it was described as quote a great somber shadowy form emerging out of the mist
0: there's only like a quarter mile of visibility and in the harbor there's some 300 boats just kind of bobbing (laughs) around not being able to see very well but everybody was just so excited with a couple exceptions Let's talk about the suffragists, perhaps. Okay, so there's this grand statue of a woman celebrating liberty going up in New York. Everyone's celebrating. There's dignitaries allowed on Bedloe Island. Only two of them are female. And both of them were related to other dignitaries that were there. The organizers thought that they would get tripped and trampled because of their skirts. So the suffragists are like, you know,
1: we don't have freedom and liberty. We don't have the liberty to vote here. I can't celebrate this. So what they had done is chartered a boat, And then they got as close to the statue as possible to try to deliver their message of disenfranchisement. Liberty as a woman what hypocrisy when no American woman has liberty. Votes for women. Votes for women. If only they had a PA system instead of megaphones. And also, it would have worked better if they could have zoomed around thoroughly. They were hampered by the visibility and just the sheer crush of votes. But I would not be surprised if people who needed to hear the message heard the message. Whether or not it made it into their hearts, mm, I'm pretty sure it did not. Now, in the organizer's defense, one of the two women who had been on Bedloe's Island did in fact get trampled during the mad, crazy exit to get off the island. She was knocked down and stepped upon and dragged hither and yon and was quite muddy by the time she arrived at her destination. Not that that's a reason to exclude women. I'm just saying in their mind, their reasoning had just been validated. (laughs) But all of that injury and angry protest is slightly in our future because it is just now time for the dedication ceremonies. There's another picture I would love to see. The harbor just packed with every boat that could be mustered, everyone blasting their horns and shrieking. And during the ceremony, which of course hardly anyone watching could even hear, one of the speakers paused unexpectedly in his speech and Bartholdi mistakenly yanked the rope that released this giant French flag that had been covering her face. And of course it fell because of gravity and the crowd went wild. Every cannon in the Harbor, every gun in every boat just boom, 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 boom. It was described as a hundred independence days. <laughs> <laughs> um, the president couldn't even give his speech until the ammo was all used up. How comedic is that? <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) And here is the end of his speech after everyone quieted down. Instead of grasping in her hands the thunderbolts of terror and death, our statue holds aloft the light which illumines the way to man's enfranchisement. We will not forget that liberty has here made her home, nor shall her chosen altar be neglected. Her stream of light shall pierce the darkness of ignorance and man's oppression until liberty enlightens the world. Now, it wasn't just the suffragists that had opposed the erection of this statue and all it stood for. Also, notably, though not on the day itself. African Americans were not very excited at this celebration of liberty, at the end of man's oppression, when their rights and safety were being chipped away all over the land, which we talked about this during our Ida Wells episode, episode 25. So head back for more of the backstory about that. Liberty's torch was not shining on everyone. Ever since the end of the Civil War, African Americans were facing increasingly difficult paths legally all over the country. Things that they were prohibited from doing, obstacles placed in their way, a lot of racism and a lot of lynching. So She exists, Lady Liberty. I'm not sure how she's really doing her job for everyone, but it's it's an idea. It's no longer a dream or just a picture in a book. It might be really wise of us to explore what the Statue of Liberty means exactly. And how did her structure and her symbolism change over time? So this is probably a good time to take a break. And when we come back, we'll talk about just that. (music) So from its own creators, it's morphed from a monument to the abolition of slavery, to friendship between nations, with, of course, a strong element of its being the public face of the concept of freedom for all people, a position she still holds. That's really
0: nice. We like to think that at this point, the statue became a big hit. She was an icon. Everyone lived happily ever. God bless America. The end. That's not exactly how it played out. The Statue of Liberty was like a kid who asks for and begs for a certain Christmas present. They beg and they beg and they beg and they work really hard for you to get it and you work really hard to get it for them. They open it up on Christmas morning and there's that excited expression and then they ignore it. And that's basically what happened to the Statue of Liberty. The tourists didn't come at the beginning. There really wasn't anything for them to do there. They could look at her from the shore. The inside while you could go up in Philadelphia and into the head in Paris, the steps in the inside were just made for maintenance workers. They weren't made for people to be touring it. So she kind of was left in a state of neglect. The administration of the statue was given over to the U.S. Lighthouse Board. You know, I think Bartoli really meant it, not literally, but figuratively. But in this case, she was Taking care of like a lighthouse. There was a, a lighting situation going on in the torch. Uh, it wasn't very good. It didn't really work as a lighthouse, but that's who was taking care of it. And they pretty much left it up to the elements. But then something was happening. At this point in time, immigration to the United States was huge. And the Statue of Liberty suddenly started to play a part in it.
1: So how did the Statue of Liberty become the symbol for immigration and the American dream? Well, unknowingly, Vartoldi had a hand in this, although I think it would irritate him to think so. He had positioned her purposely in such a way to afford incoming ships the best view of her. She's actually facing south, southeast, and I'm sure if you thought about it at all, you would think she'd be facing straight east toward France. That would make sense. But what happened when he turned her so far to the south was that arriving ships go all the way around her from one side to the other as they pass. It's a long view. It's an inspirational picture to take with you as you're arriving to begin your new life. And she became tied up with the idea of hope and of possibility. She was your first experience that you had of America and what it stood for, for them, at the time and then the famous poem by emma lazarus which we all know at least the last part of give me your tired your poor your huddled masses yearning to breathe free the wretched refuse of your teeming shore. Send these, the homeless, tempest-tossed to me. I lift my lamp beside the golden door, which was actually written for a fundraiser three years before the dedication and sort of forgotten about. Emma Lazarus, however, was somebody we really should take a look at. But basically, she was a New
0: York poet. She was from a very wealthy, established Jewish family and had contributed that poem, The New Colossus, when she was Challenged. To write something about the statue. She didn't get too involved in the immigration until she made it real for herself. She started to see Jewish uh, immigrants coming over and not treated properly. She was spending time around the time that she was writing this poem working with immigrants. She was teaching them English. She was getting them in touch with services that they were going to need to establish themselves here in the United States. She was kind of working as an unofficial
1: voluntary social worker with them. And so she looked at the statue and came up that poem. No less a personage than the United States ambassador to England wrote to her about her poem at the time she wrote it, giving her praise and telling her that she had given that statue a reason for being. She had given it a noble cause, just the right thing that it should stand for, which in this ambassador's mind, was an achievement, and I quote, more arduous and valuable than that of the sculptor himself. So is what he is saying there, but for this poem, we would have had our funding 10 years ago? I think Uh so.
0: I think what he was saying was this is a um, something that's happening in our country that we could really make her a symbol of right now because her purpose was kind of muddied. Think, all that stuff you just said. So as time goes on, you know, things take on different meaning. And I think he saw that, you know, in her poem, made that happen, you know, made that meaning happen.
1: Or maybe he is just telling her that she has made the Statue of Liberty have any meaning at all, which it lacked before.
0: Unfortunately... Emma Lazarus never knew that her poem was going to be put on the Statue of Liberty. She just thought of it as being written for it, but not in the place that we see it. She died at age 38, a year after the Statue of Liberty was completed. But her poem didn't go up on that plaque on the statue until 1903.
1: <laughs> no mysteriously, and I put this in quotes, mysteriously, 20 years after it was written, the poem appeared cast into a bronze plaque that was attached inside the statue's pedestal. Now, by now, the National Park Service, were the bosses of this place, were sort of bewildered. Huh. Where'd that come from? Were they really bewildered? Seriously? Because (laughs) gradually, although it took like 50 years... For this to come up, that a woman from one of New York's oldest families, Georgina Schuyler, yes, those Schuylers, philanthropist, moneyed elite, and social reformer was responsible for it. And that poem ended up transforming, I think for all time, the meaning of the Statue of Liberty completely. From when the statue was completed to World War One, there were 350,000 immigrants each year, which grew to a million a year. Passing the Statue of Liberty with all of her symbolism and really, it became cemented in the public consciousness that she was there to welcome the new arrivals herself. We will leave the immigration um, conversation there, sort of, with a special nod to an episode of the Bowery Boys, who cover Castle Garden, where the immigrants used to come at the beginning of this period, and also Ellis Island, which is the more famous immigration center, in an episode of their fine podcast. And we will give you a link. But all I want to say is that the last lines of that poem without the teeming refuse i think they figured that would be insulting <laughs> are <laughs> also mounted on the wall of the international arrivals building at jfk airport although i couldn't really verify that with a photo <laughs> well what i'm having trouble with is when you when you look up emma lazarus and the international arrivals building what you get in every search is the protest against the banning of people from certain countries so uh-huh. it's a little bit troublesome to try to find that poem among all the the pictures so i understand so bertoldi himself was on his way out and he was a little dismayed that her purpose had strayed so far from what he had intended. He said, my idea has always been that the island would be in the future, a kind of pantheon for the glories of American independence that you would build around the monument of Liberty, the statues of your very great men and collect there all the noble memories. This island should become a sort of pilgrimage. So yes, it's a pilgrimage. He got the last part. Mm -hmm. That's true. That's true. Well, it's also a gift. And, you know, after you give something
0: to someone, you have to cut the strings. You know, they're allowed (laughs) to do whatever they want with it. And uh, unfortunately, that's what he had to do. I guess it wasn't a concept that he was familiar with.
1: (laughs) Now, there are, I mean, there's some statues, mostly to immigration, um, large ones, not colossi, um, of immigrants. And then there's also... Five statues. I mean, these are great people. They're closely associated with the Statue of Liberty. There's Bartholdi himself, Laboulaye, who had the original idea, Gustave Eiffel, Emma Lazarus, and Joseph Pulitzer. A great grouping of people to have on the island. Yeah, I don't know who he
0: wanted. I mean, maybe he wanted people that he knew.
1: He wanted George Washington. He wanted Thomas Jefferson. He wanted Benjamin Franklin. He wanted Mm -hmm. Lincoln. Yeah, that's who he wanted. Yeah. If only we could fly him to Mount Rushmore. (laughs) Well, um, moving back to the statue herself, you know, they sold this thing to the government as a lighthouse and it was never very light. They took the torch and cut it into a lattice scenario to allow more light to come out. But it was still very meh at night because proper lighthouse lights might just melt her hand off. It wasn't until 1916 that the statue could even be seen at night as technology caught up to the idea. But, unfortunately, a terrorist incident on American soil by Germans. Sorry, this begins your the end of your love affair with Germans. America. <laughs> um, it caused the torch to be closed to visitors forever. Um, the Germans had blown up some munitions nearby and Liberty suffered lots of shrapnel damage and there was a weakening of her arm which had never been installed properly i saw a diagram of um, the original gustave fell framework and how it had been installed is completely different right at the shoulder in fact the angle's even wrong so it was mm-hmm. never as strong as it ought to have been so the torch still to this day you can't go up in the torch anymore that's a bummer it is
0: well it wasn't even steps it was like a ladder of 40 rung ladder that, to get up to the torch It would be kind of dangerous, you know, once you start getting more people in there. I don't know. It's not like walking upstairs. I can kind of see. I mean, it would be a cool view, but. Mm. Who cleans
1: up all the pee?
0: The pee? (laughs) From stress? No. (laughs) From fear? (laughs) Well, you can actually see from up there. There's
1: drone footage now. (laughs) i'll get to that in media but yeah (laughs) right around the same time the statue of liberty began to turn inevitably as she is standing in the elements like i had a hard time understanding earlier she began to turn from her original red brown color she was never shiny copper in america let me just tell you remember she was in france for a long time Mm -hmm. um so she started to turn verdigris green, which is really the main thing that saved her outsides from decay. So it's not necessarily a bad thing. There is an experiment I used to do with Jet when he was a little boy with pennies um, and vinegar that'll turn him green. But it really works better if you have a penny older than 1983 because pennies were 95% copper up till then. And now they're only 5% copper. Well, yeah, it's hardly any copper at all. But the color of an old penny was kind of the color that she used to be. She had to be extinguished during World War II because she was considered a fine beacon for bombing raids. So they turned her off. During the entirety of World War II. But right afterward, as a celebration of Allied victory, she was given lights that are 2,500 times brighter than the moon.
0: (laughs) Technology finally caught up to what he wanted in the beginning, you know, to have her be this huge beacon.
1: In the 80s. And I remember this, and I think everyone who was around probably remembers this. There was a major restoration project, but there was a lot of hand wringing about it because if you put up scaffolding, it would wreck up the facade. The facade's just hanging there. It's not like you can put stuff up against it. So that was an engineering nightmare that had to be overcome. And also removing the paint, the layers of protective paint off the beams inside. What are you going to do? Like you can't use all these chemicals because the fumes would wreck the copper. It was... I mean, come on. The greatest minds in industry (laughs) in the world were set upon this project. So the scaffolding was kind of self-supporting. That was one team. And they ended up freezing the paint off with donated liquid nitrogen and then polishing the inside with donated Arm & Hammer baking soda. They had to be just as creative maintaining this thing as they had been erecting it in the first place. (laughs) I want to say, though, that
0: the fundraising for that refurbishing happened a whole lot faster than the original fundraising. President Reagan turned the project over to Lee Iacocca, and he oversaw it as kind of a private fundraising event. So all the $86 million of it was raised in a fairly short period of time privately. All
1: privately. But I don't know about that because I literally remember putting spare pocket change in a box. Right. That's what I'm
0: saying. Just like Pulitzer did with America helping out and raising the money. Yeah, I'm not saying like, I mean, there were corporations and organizations with deep pockets that gave big chunks, but a lot of it was contributed by the American people again a whole lot faster than back when it was opened up.
1: And I want to say there was a big push by the Boy Scouts of America, too. It became like a big cause that they supported to raise money for the statue's restoration, too. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the late 40s and early 50s, about 200 replicas of the statue, uh about seven feet tall, made of copper, were bought by Boy Scout troops and donated in the majority of states in the United States. I want to say it started in Kansas City and anybody could order a statue sent to their city. There's probably one near you. In fact, they are found in 39 states. There's one near us in Kansas City, near the research hospital on Meyer Boulevard. So the Boy Scouts have had a long history of being associated with the Statue of Liberty. Well, one thing that had to happen, poor old torch, man, the torch had been cut in pieces to try to get it to be brighter. And it was corroded beyond safety. It was getting too weak. The arm had to be fixed. They were actually thinking they were going to have to take the arm off and lay it on the ground and fix it, but then eventually they were able to stabilize it up in the air. Man, these are some fearless people. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't even know. And um, so they did take the torch off and the original torch is now underneath the statue in the museum and they replaced it with a nickel and gold plated solid torch with a reflector. And that's kind of more what Bartholdi had intended in the first place. I loved it every step of this restoration. They kind
0: of said, what would Bartoldi do? You know, what did he want here? They could have just made the torch anything, right? Mm-hmm. It, it had already been chopped up from the original. He wasn't here to say anything. But they really did look back at what he had done originally and did their best to duplicate it, which most people never saw.
1: <laughs> right, right. They did some very 80s modern things also. Um, accessibility issues, were taken care of in a way that hadn't been before. There's actually closed-circuit viewing area for um, wheelchairs. So I thought that was Mm -hmm.
0: great. And all the stairs were replaced. Somewhere along the line, they had put the stairs going up and down long after she was put up. Um, But now they had to replace them all because they were all worn out. They had to clean or repair Every inch of her skin, the whole exterior of the statue, every inch of it had to be taken care of. What a tedious project. And they got it all done in four years. Blows my mind.
1: I didn't think they did anything to the
0: outside. I mean, they didn't strip it down, but they cleaned it. Oh, okay. And there was holes in it, like rust that they had to fix. Yeah, there was repairs to the outside Mm -hmm. and all the concrete. I mean, everything was top to bottom.
1: I just didn't want people to think that they had scraped off the verdigris because they never did. Oh, no, no, no. Actually, that's protecting it. And that
0: was I learned that. I did not realize that that I just thought it was a color it became. But that's the protective element for the rest of the copper is that exterior. Yeah, that's cool.
1: Science. Woohoo! <laughs> so the Statue of Liberty has been the source of political demonstrations. The number of flags of many sorts unfurled by secret climbers kind of blew my mind. <laughs> I know. <laughs> there have been many public celebrations. Um, the most important one, I think, was Operation Sail, is what they called it, filling the harbor with boats on July 4th, 1976. And uh-huh. I don't know if any of you guys are old enough to remember the bicentennial. I'm barely old enough. In fact, I don't, I think I only remember what people told me about it, but. The country was something else that year. And every single thing had flags and it was a very patriotic year. Okay. I I do remember it. And
0: um, I was in New England. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So everything that was happening in New York was also happening in Boston. And that's where we were on our boat. We were with the tall ships in Boston, just kind of touring the harbor, um, looking at these ships on the 4th of July, 1976. I'm not telling you how old I was. (laughs) But I do remember it.
1: Yeah, it was a big deal. It was a really big deal. There was a thwarted plan, um, actually kind of a professional plan to blow her arm and head off in 1965. I am very grateful that they were able to stop that in time. I don't know how they found out about it. Um, there was also a bomb that went off in the basement in 1980. So now, of course, security is tighter, and there are bomb-sniffing dogs everywhere. And I do believe you have to go through security checkpoints to get there. Oh, you have
0: to go through so many security checkpoints. It's not even funny. After 9-11,
1: the island remained closed to
0: visitors until December, and the actual monument was closed until 2004. And right now, you ha- there's, like, different levels of Tickets that you can get, you can go inside, but the amount of security and the things that you can actually bring with you um, is it's tight security. And there is not a lot you can bring with you.
1: No, I remember being worried about that right after in addition to all the other things I was worried about during September 11th. I was worried about the Statue of Liberty.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. What a target, right?
1: Uh well there have been occupations of the, <laughs> the statue by women's groups and Greenpeace and a group of Vietnam veterans protesting the war who actually lived there I don't know for how long a couple days but no one hassled them they came out and no one was arrested yeah. um, in life and in art the statue of liberty had become shorthand for the concept of ideal america i guess Even now, especially now, you're seeing the uptick in political cartoons featuring Lady Liberty in assorted situations. Though I will tell you she's been used in every aspect, by every side. Pro-immigration, anti-immigration, reconstruction, war, anti-war, civil rights, women's rights, foreign policy, I mean... You name it, she's the stand-in for the concept of America and even the concept of liberty itself worldwide. I want to harken back to the Tiananmen Square protests. They built their own version of the Statue of Liberty called the Goddess of Democracy, who was used as a symbol during the protests. And the Chinese government destroyed the original. But replicas of the Goddess of Democracy have been made and stand safely in places like Washington, D.C., and British Columbia. And the Chinese student said, at this grim moment, we need a powerful cementing force to strengthen our resolve. Goddess of democracy, you're the symbol of every student in the square, of the hearts of millions of people. Long live the people. Long live freedom. Long live democracy. And I think that's the spirit that they got, of course, from the Statue of Liberty. Thirty-five countries besides the United States have had stamps featuring the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> That's not even in their country. Um, that is how powerful of a symbol she has become today. Over two million visitors a year make the pilgrimage to see her. Um, some, according to the guards, kiss the ground. Some cry. More will be accommodated because a new visitor center and museum is getting ready to begin construction. And you will never believe who is in charge of the financing of this. Diane von Furstenberg, the the designer from Belgium whose mother had been imprisoned at Auschwitz. So they have a big stake in preservation and restoration and ensuring that more people see her. And they have already raised over $40 million of their $100 million goal. So she's even faster than everyone else. (laughs) I guess
0: we learn over time, right?
1: And so until that new visitor center is built, that is the end of our story of the Statue of Liberty.
0: It's kind of weird to end it here. You know, usually we talk about a woman's legacy and the Statue of Liberty's legacy hasn't been completely written yet. So I guess it's just end dot, 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 you know, (laughs) ellipsis to be
1: continued and then we'll leave it there but now it is time as usual for media
0: media media we should have a song no
1: (laughs) it's too late
0: (laughs) no we're always in a constant state of change that's how you get forward in life
1: i have to tell you and i don't know if i'll cut this out or not i had a particularly hard time being very cheerful during this episode i will tell you Uh i really did Mm -hmm. yeah I, you know, that's the problem I'm having is I don't want to get too political, but I believe that there is a grim cloud covering the country right now. And I am not very excited about it.
0: I know we choose our subjects, you know, well in advance. So, um, it just happened that we were looking at the 4th of July and, uh, the political climate in our country, you know, things happen. And yeah, it was very strange. It was kind of surreal, actually, to be looking back and looking now with the same, you know, same storylines, kind of.
1: The lack of <laughs> jokes I might, might stem from the fact that I've bitten all my fingernails off. <laughs> all right. Media,
0: media. This
1: <laughs> I'm trying to sell the song thing. It's going to I'm going to sell it. Let's start with books. So um, let's see. There's, uh, you know, there's kind of three that I like equally well, and I think any of these will do. I don't know that any of these rise over any of the others. Liberty's Torch by Elizabeth Mitchell, The Statue of Liberty, A Transatlantic Story by Edward Berenson, and A Statue for America by Jonathan Harris. Those are the ones that I find that go all the way through. There's a lot that stop after it was built, so... Anyway, those go all the way through. And then there's a book that I really, really liked that explored the history of both Columbia and liberty in art in America during the Revolutionary War period and the War of 1812 period and also in um, folk art. It's called Liberties with Liberty, the Fascinating History of America's Proudest Symbol by Nancy Jo Fox.
0: Uh, Okay, I had those too. And I liked uh, just as a reference book, the Statue of Liberty Encyclopedia by Barry Moreno. You have to kind of look, it's all alphabetized. So you have to know what you're looking for, but for like little tiny things, I thought it was a really great reference. And there were some really good pictures in there too. You know, me with pictures and it's a huge book. It's a coffee table book. There is a lot of kids books about this subject and only two of them stood out to me. Okay. Um, I think my favorite one was the story of the Statue of Liberty by Xavier Nins illustrated by Cynthia Martin and Brent Shunover. And it was a graphic novel, well, a graphic children's book. So I love graphic novels and children's books. So um, I thought that one was really well done. And the other book that I really liked was about Emma Lazarus. It's called Emma's Poem, The Voice of the Statue of Liberty by Linda Glazier, illustrated by Claire A. Navola. And it tells her story and the poem, the whole poem is in there. It's a sonnet. And, you know, you can read it and read about her life. I thought that was a great children's book.
1: As to links, um, there, uh, let's see, I have a link to the medals. That was given to Mary Todd Lincoln by French progressives, in which the phrase Statue of Liberty is included long before the date. Rather than give you the link, I'm going to put these political cartoons about immigration on the Pinterest board. I have the history of Columbia, goddess of America, and why not a link to the song Hail Columbia? If you know the tune to Itsy Bitsy Spider, you're halfway there. (laughs) Um, A link to the Bowery Boys episode on um, Castle Garden and Ellis Island. There's a neat photo essay on The Guardian that will uh, show you pictures of different replicas of the Statue of Liberty all over the world. It's pretty cool. Oh, and we'll have to put that picture of France crowning art and industry that we swear is the face of Lady Liberty. One last thing I have. I literally have in my possession, at my house. There is a company called Crazy Aaron's Thinking Putty. And a couple of years ago, although I can't find a link because I think they've sold out, they sold this putty in a little tin and it was um, iridescent colors of green and copper. It glowed with a copper glow in the dark like the Statue of Liberty does. And within the putty, it had actual gratings from the statue of liberty powder from the restoration so we have some i don't know where they got the powder from um but they did say in their ads that they swear it was perfectly legal (laughs) You didn't talk about the biggies, but I don't ever
0: expect you to. I always expect you to find these really cool um, related things. But the biggies, of course, are the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation uh, at LibertyEllisFoundation.org. It's got all kinds of facts, not only about the statue, but about Ellis Island. And there's a search function on it where you can find any ancestors that might have come through Ellis Island, might have come through New York. So. My grandfather came from Poland, so I was trying to find him. I found my mother. My mother was born in the United States, and I was actually on the phone with her. We were talking about alternative spellings that it might be under. I was trying to look for his name, and there she was. And I'm like, oh, here's a Joanne Weinseck. And she came in 1952, and she's like, that's me. My mom had gone to England uh, to study and she was coming back and she came back through New York. <laughs> so I never did find my grandfather, but I did find my mom, which was awesome. Um and then the National Park Service has a site about the Statue of Liberty, all kinds of interesting facts, videos, photos there are webcams up on the torch and in the crown. And so you can actually see live as it's happening what it looks like from the Statue of Liberty. Cool. Which, I know. I thought that was so cool. And the Bartholdi Museum in Colmar, also um, there's a website and you can look at a lot of his other art, you know, besides the statue. He has paintings in there and drawings and all of his other statuary um, is there's represented in this museum. So I, and you can see it without actually going to Colmar.
1: (laughs) Yay. Did you watch any uh, documentaries? Well, the big one um, is the Ken Burns documentary, but it's from 1985. Um, Mm -hmm. It does feature the vocal stylings of Jeremy Irons, which is always good. Uh Yeah, it was actually uh, Ken Burns, only his third
0: documentary listed on his site so it's early on it doesn't have like the polish he has now but there's again like a ken burns documentary there's lots and lots of images and there was another one that was kind of um the production value wasn't as high it's called the statue of liberty building a colossus it was produced by the learning channel with chip taylor productions there's reenactments which always to me come across as very drunk history like
1: but (laughs) but not as funny.
0: But not as funny. I know. I was watching it. My daughter walked by. She's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, "I'm trying to pretend this is drunk history." (laughs) But what it did have, which was really cool, was actual video of how the statue was made by you know contemporary people. That they showed you how the molds were made and the plaster was laid and the copper was pound out. And you can watch them do. I mean, it's a film. You can watch them do it, which I thought was. Amazing because you don't have to just read about it. You know, you can see it. So for that reason, I like that documentary.
1: Now I will tell you though that drunk history um did do an episode featuring Frederick Bartholdi and the Statue of Liberty. Uh it's called Joseph Pulitzer Saves the Statue of Liberty. It's uh Eric Falconer was the one that told the story, and um he tried to make the Statue of Liberty out of Plato at the end as an illustration and it didn't work very well um so there you go um much better than that documentary but without all the reenactment maybe are we are we
0: not going to take this opportunity to pitch ourselves to drunk history again (laughs) we would love to be on there wouldn't
1: we i don't know because i don't think i want my mother to see it after (laughs) so maybe not (laughs) okay so as to movies like Other movies, I decided that I would try to find a list of movies, and there's a lot, but maybe I could go down to, like, five, where the Statue of Liberty is a prominent member of the cast, maybe? Okay. And I had forgotten (laughs) about the movie Splash. Mm -hmm. Do you remember the movie Splash? Daryl Hannah is a mermaid who decides she's going to come to Earth to find her true love, who I think is Tom Hanks. And Mm -hmm. she comes out of the water completely naked on Liberty Island and hijinks ensue. So there's one. Ghostbusters 2, which I did not see. Did anyone see Ghostbusters 2? And I don't mean the second iteration of Ghostbusters with Melissa McCarthy. I mean Ghostbusters 2, which I don't even remember happening. Evidently, um, they fight... With Lady Liberty. A giant Lady Liberty is like walking down the street fighting people.
0: Okay, I don't even remember that either. Splash, it's so gross because I the
1: Vankman character says, I wonder whether she's naked under that toga. It's a super quality movie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, what about a Hitchcock movie, Saboteur? It's from 1942. And the highlight, the climax is that the bad guy falls off the torch to his death. Um, let's see. Day after tomorrow. I'm still waiting for you to get to the big one in my head. (laughs) Day after tomorrow, where she was um, taken down by a tsunami and uh, deep impact and Cloverfield featuring her decapitated head both times. And the last (laughs) one I'm going to say is Planet of the Apes. That's the one. (laughs) When you say movies and the Statue of
0: Liberty, that's the one that comes to mind immediately.
1: She was also featured in Titanic, but that was like a little on the nose. Oh, (laughs) well, I'm just saying, of course she was, because that's what happens when the boat comes into New York, you see the Statue of Liberty. So there right at the end, Kate Winslet's character looks at the Statue of Liberty as she comes back into New York without Jack, without her money, without her past. With a big rock in her pocket. True. So that's like her nest egg. (laughs) That she never spent. And in closing, let me just say, to Bartholdi, the Statue of Liberty was a symbol of glory, of the majesty of the new world and the history of the old world. But it was Emma Lazarus who changed her into the mother of exiles, who could protect and save those who could not protect themselves. The tired, the poor, the huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the lost, the bewildered, the threatened. It is estimated that 85% of all living Americans are descended from someone who once passed by the Statue of Liberty in New York Harbor on their way to a new life. To them, she silently looked across, just as she does these days, with her lit lamp heralding the promise of an awaiting new world. Thanks for listening.
0: Bye! Just like the Statue of Liberty herself, the pedestal she stands on and the refurbishing that she had in the 1980s all happened because a lot of people dug into their pockets and gave what they could to make it happen. This show happens because a lot of people dig into their pockets and give us generously what they can to help get this show into everyone's ears. Beckett and I both appreciate it greatly. Thank you very much.
1: As long as we're saying thanks, thank you to all librarians in the whole wide world. Thank you to the United States Navy who provided us with their rendition of Hail Columbia. And thank you to the creator of the end song, Emma Grace. The song is entitled Stand By Me. You can find a link to her SoundCloud at thehistorychicks.com.
2: man starting a
1: People are looking at me through the window. I mean, like really looking at me. <laughs> it's kind of freaking me out. Okay. Um, <laughs> speaking of animals in the zoo, if you want to know what's happening to me right now, there are people I have to, I'm covering my face with my paper. There are people looking at me. I mean, there's nose prints on the window. Seriously. Yeah. That's creepy. I mean, That's I'm like cr- six feet from now. I know how the polar bear feels, frankly. <laughs>